0: All right, let's. I just want to read a couple of these verses again because I want to make sure they're fresh in your mind for this. So I want you to listen to what God— this is, again, 1469 if you're looking in the book. And, and here's, here's why this is important. Um, because essentially this passage outlines what do you do when basically everything you've dreamed is totally shattered. And especially when That dream, you thought it was God's dream. (laughs) So you don't only feel disappointed, but you feel spiritually let down. And this is God speaking into that situation with this particular group of people. And I want, let's just go back over verse three. Um, Ask them, right? Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing but now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O, son of Z- o Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Right? So the background of this, for those who weren't here two weeks ago, is these people have come back 600-something miles from Babylon back to God's promised land. They were supposed to build the temple. They got started. They got 20 years sidetracked. God finally shows up and gives them sort of a behind whipping in the first chapter. Hey guys, listen. You gotta build. And so they do it and now they've laid the foundation and they're getting ready to build and they've sort of cleared the rubble and they've laid the foundation and everybody can see basically what this is going to look like when they're done already. And it's not going to be anything like the original temple. Um, they're going to they're rebuild a temple. But they're not rebuilding the temple that was built by Solomon, their greatest and wealthiest king that was a wonder of the ancient world. They're going to build, they're going to cobble together a building to have worship in. Um, I, uh, I've, I've, I've had some experiences with the whole issue of dreams lately. Um, as you know, last week um, was Martin, L- Martin Luther King week, and um, uh, and I think, in one, you know, Martin Luther King's famous speech, as most people would associate with him, is his I Have a Dream speech, right? And that was a good dream. It's a good dream um, that he didn't see, Right? There's been a good bit of progress, but he didn't see that dream. Um, but it, we know it was a good one. And, um, but yet, um, there, there's—dreams are not always treated that sacredly, right? Um, everybody's supposed to have a dream, right? I, I was in Disney not that long ago uh, last week, and— it was, I mean, everything was, have a dream this. I mean, they had these shows from the stage, and I mean, we were walking by the show, and the whole show was like, do kids, do you have a dream? And I was thinking, I have a dream. I want to pick up Mickey and throw him all the way into the reflector pool, you know? <laughs> it, but, I mean, the whole, and, and I mean, and, and it sort of culminates in the, one of the latest Disney movies is this one, Tangled, in which there is a song called, I've Got a Dream, and it's you know, the concert guy with the hook who wants to be the concert pianist, and it's just, everybody's got a dream. And, um, and don't get me wrong, I don't mean to beat up on Disney because actually, I, like, this is my third favorite Disney movie, and, but, but there's this whole sort of notion that you get if you spend any time with Jiminy Cricket that, um, that having a dream and chasing your dream leads to most of the best in life. There's this general notion in the sentimentality of Americans that Disney makes billions on every year and other people um, live out and profit from as well that, um, that having a dream, you've got to have a dream. Like if you were at a tea party and somebody said, what's your dream? And you're like, I don't really have a dream. They'd feel really bad for you, wouldn't they? They'd be like, oh, you don't have a dream. But because you're, and then, and then you're expected to chase your dream. You've got to chase your dream. In fact, you, you can do all, all odds and ends of immoral things as long as you're chasing your dream. And um, and listen, I, I, I don't want to be mean about dreams, and I think that there are some people who need more dream-ishness in their life, and there are some people who need more reality in their life. But, but here's what I think this passage tells us as clearly as anything, and that is that neither having more dreaminess in your life or more reality in your life is what actually brings courage and helps you overcome fear. Having a dream is one of the most fragile forms of human motivation that has ever existed. And getting your motivation from a dream, particularly certain kinds of dreams, um, may create some motivation, but it will just as easily kill your motivation. So there's a real upper for you. Um, but, so I think what, one of the things that needs to happen, though, is there actually ha- you actually have to make a distinction between kinds of dreams, because there are some kinds of dreams that are really good. I think, I think Martin Luther King's dream was really good. So here's the distinction that I want to make. I think that we should see that there are two kinds of dreams. There's the kind of dream that you have because it's going to make your life. There's one kind of dream that will make your life. If it happens, your your life is going to be made. And that's your dream. You know, if this happens to me, it's going to make my life. Now, you might not say it that crassly, but that's really what you think. And most of us have sort of kind of pictorial image in our mind of what that would look like. And then there's another kind of dream, and that's the dream for which you would give your life. It is a dream that's so noble and in most cases so moral in nature that even if succeeding was a fool's errand, it would still be worth it and, and the dream itself is worth dying for even if it doesn't happen. Those are two very different kinds of dreams. And most of us do not make the distinction between the two. But one of them Motivates powerfully, and the other one doesn't. (laughs) The make your life dream will take your life. And the give your life dream will give you life. They're fundamentally different, and it's so easy, if you don't make the distinction, it's so easy to get caught up in how good a dream is, you get yourself a good make your life dream, and it kills you. The first kind produces disappointment, selfishness, the other courage. And it's important in our lives, even in some of the best areas of our lives, that we get these, and excuse the pun, untangled. Ha 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 ha. Um, there, Okay, so th- I was, I'm reading this book called Sticky Church by a guy named Larry Osborne. Um, I'm going to read it with a bunch of the staff and I'm kind of previewing it. And um, when Larry Osborne went to North Coast Church, which is where he pastors in California, he was like 28 years old. And he was one of these guys who wasn't just a flaky dreamer. He was like a goals-oriented dreamer. So he was the guy who had like, been to the classes and he had his little notebook and he'd written out his 10-year like, goals and all that kind of... He, was that, he wasn't like, kind of like the whimsical dreamer. He was the like, all right, I have a dream and I'm going to make it happen dreamer. And so, he shows up at North Point Church, or North Coast Church, and he had basically two dreams in relationship to his ministry. One was to be a really good shepherd and pastor. And the other, which was a measurable outcome of that, was that he was going to pastor a church of over a thousand people. And the idea was, is that, is that one measurable dream would help him achieve the other. And so, they would kind of they would have synergy with one another But what he, what he found out So what happened was he shows up on his first day As like the, the pastor And like 150 people come Which was more than they'd ever had at this church And then the next week they had like 128 But then in like 8 or 9 weeks There were like 150 people there So that's pretty good growth 120 to 150 And then 3 years later there was 151 people <laughs> Which is the growth of a third of a person a year Which is a little bloody And so Um he was just like, he was just really dejected by that because he really felt like his dream was, wasn't happening. And, and what he realized was that one of the reasons his dream wasn't happening is because his two dreams, rather than synergizing with each other, were actually in conflict with each other. His make-your-life dream, which was pastor church of a thousand people or more, was actually making him pastor in a way— That kept him from being a good pastor, which in turn kept him from reaching more people. So his make your life dream destroyed his give your life dream and his make your life dream. Because who wants to go to a church where the pastor just wants to pastor a church of a thousand people? And what happens? The church never gets there. And so he has a a chapter in his book on how to grow your church called Kill Your Dream. Because that's what has to happen to most of our make-your-life dreams. You have to kill them. They have to die. They don't have to grow. You don't have to have one. You can let people feel sorry for you. You do not need a make-your-life dream. Because your your make-your-life dream will almost always kill you because it has built into it one, unreal expectations, because the future is always unknown. But the dream is always specific. It never turns out the way you thought. Even when I wanted to be a pastor when I was younger, I didn't necessarily want to be a pastor in Madison, right? Like, like I had a vision of the kind of woman I would marry, and I married a woman very much like that. But the woman in my head was not a woman who is real. You know, the, 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 the woman I wanted to marry in my dream marriage didn't get cranky. Like, ever you know, and she was sweet and she always was encouraged, you know, like, and, but then I went and I married a real human because that's the only kind of woman I could find. And (laughs) turns out she, and then it turns out she had dreams about the man she would marry that I haven't always been exactly a perfect representation. I mean, and, and it's just the nature of dreams because you make them without any, any knowledge of exactly the particulars of the situation you'll be in. And so they're always wrong. Plus, you cannot help but get your sinful, idolatrous expectations loaded into them So you make your life dream always has Your personal, self-interested, not-God-glorifying, idolatrous dreams loaded into them And, And third, you don't know what God's providence for your life is You don't know it So what good is it to create this make your life dream When you don't know what God's providence for your life is And guess which one God is more committed to he will fulfill his providence for your life. And if we are wildly committed to our make your life dream and it has nothing to do with his providential goals for our life, which it probably isn't, then you gotta go, we've got to go through this long and painful process of getting the hint, which is no fun. It's much better, much more biblical, much more spiritual, much more gospel focused to just kill the make your life dream. It's got to go. This jacket is not going to work. And um, that's what's happening in this passage. God is essentially telling these people, because see, they know that God's providence is to build the temple, but they have added it to that, the make your life dream of, it's going to be great. It's going to be just like Solomon's temple. And what they're realizing is, just because God wants this to happen doesn't mean he's going to make this happen, because he's not. God is perfectly happy with a terrible-looking, ordinary temple And, and, but, but he's not saying, stop dreaming. Life is going to be terrible. You know, get yourself a garbage can and be Oscar the Grouch, and that's just how life is going to be. If that's not he, What he's doing is he's moving them from one dream to another. He's not saying, get rid of your dreams, totally. What he's saying is, you've got to make your life dream. You need to give your life dream, and that's what I meant to give you in the first place. That's what I want to give you again. You need a, you need a give your life dream. You need, a, you need my dream. You need a purpose. You need need a dream that will give you courage and boldness. You don't need a dream that is going to gut your motivation because it'll never meet your expectations and then all you're going to do is quit and settle. And so he says, Look, just look at the temple you're building. Just look at it. Isn't it terrible? Like, get out the 80 year olds who were here when Solomon's temple was here before it was totally destroyed. Look at it. Just admit it. It looks terrible. It is not going to be like you imagined Right? And then he doesn't say But I'm going to make it that good No, he says, look, it's going to be that way And then he just says Now be strong Because you're going to build it anyway One of the things that we have to understand about how God does things is He almost always glorifies the absolutely ordinary. He, he tells us to do something that's very ordinary, and then He lets, he, through His providence of where it ends up going, and through just giving His glory to it, He glorifies, He makes amazing a very, a desperately ordinary and desperately normal thing. That's what He does. He does not take this really cool, sexy, awesome, like woo thing and then say, oh, I'm going to get on that, that bandwagon. I'm going to get in on that. He doesn't do that. He takes something totally ordinary that's not cool and he gives it glory and it give, he gives it unexpected success. That's how, he, that's how he works. Because he wants people, partly because he wants people doing the right things for the right reasons, partly because he doesn't give his glory to another— he wants it for himself, not because he's selfish, but he could, because he wants all of us to enjoy the fact that glory that is to be enjoyed comes from him. And so he, he has to get them to this place where, and you and I, we have to get to this place where we really believe and really feel this, that if you follow the give your life dream that God gives us, your life is going to look worse, but be better your life is going to look worse and be better. It is going to look worse than the image you have of the future. It's going to look worse than what you think you can reasonably get for yourself. It's going to look worse than that. And it's going to be better than that. That's what God is asking these people to believe. Build your stinky temple, and I will give it more glory than the great gold-crusted one your big-shot king built. That's what he's saying. Um, I, I don't know how many of you saw the, the new version of the movie True Grit, but they're, they quoted—there's a, a verse right at the beginning of the movie that says, and they only quote the first half of the verse from 28, Proverbs 21, that the wicked flees, though no one pursues. And the second half of the verse is, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, think about that. Now, if—now if—and again, I'm not trying to inordinately pick on Disney. I'm just trying to show a contrast here. Now, if a Disney writer had written that verse, they would have said, you know, the—you know, people who don't have dreams run away. But people who have dreams are bold as a lion. But that's not what God says. God links it morally, right? The wicked flee, though nobody pursues them. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Why? Because give your life dreams are almost always fundamentally moral. Because they're about how things should be how things must be, whether or not I get anything out of them, they're disinterested in that sense. My personal interests and my interest in how the world is are separate, and I'm more interested in how the world is supposed to be. Why? Because I'm interested in how God says things should be, and so they're fundamentally moral. And now you—I know some of you are like, now wait a second, Nick, because most most people pitch the moral thing fast as anything. Yeah, well that's because the whole reason they're moral to begin with is because being moral is a make-your-life-dream-for-them. They're being moral because they think it's going to get them to the dream that they want that will make their life So they're good so that they'll, people will like them and they'll respect them and doors will open for them and so on People who are moral for those reasons, yeah They don't stick with their morality, absolutely Because their morality never was a give your life dream It was a make your life dream But people who have a deep-seated purpose-filled conviction That even if this takes my life, I will stand for this You can't make them run They're they're bold as a line But people for whom People for whom Whether or not they stay and fight Is a cost-benefit analysis Those people will almost always quit and settle Right? So, I mean, think about it this way If you graph For the engineers in the room If you graph the expectations of success That's your dream And how likely it is you could actually make that dream With the personal cost For that dream, right? Because you're giving up personal potential to chase the dream You could be doing something else, right? It's basic economics, right? Alternative use of resources here You've got to, to even start out, you've got to have some idea that you're going to have some success, right? And then there is this cost-benefit analysis Is it likely enough for how much I'm putting into this? And if you are on the south side of this line, you are not going to stick with the dream, because it doesn't beat the cost-benefit analysis And if you're not going to make it you're most In most cases, you're not going to keep going You're going to quit For example, a few months ago I, I hurt one of my ankles playing basketball And um, I was off it for a while Like almost two months And I finally got in this sort of like Get back running and get back in shape sort of deal And so I got on the treadmill And I thought, you know, I'm young, I'm vibrant And even though I haven't run in two months I'm going to run two miles Right? Because because two miles used to be nothing, right? Nothing. So I get on this treadmill, and I get up to about six miles an hour, and I'm running along. And at about point 0.4, I'm ready to die. Okay, like my—I can feel my heart pumping in my chest. Like, it's hard to breathe. I, I'm just, I feel like I'm gonna die, okay? And um, so I'm looking at the point 0.4, and it's just not turning into point 0.5. It just won't— do it. And so I'm just kind of like, and I realize, I realize there's no way, there's no way I'm going to make it to 2.0. It's not, that is not going to happen. And so, and, and now listen, do you think that I thought at that moment, you know what, that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is just to get back in shape. So I'll just run as long as I can. I really long. Maybe I'll get to 0.6 or 0.9 Who knows? That's not how I felt I was like, damn, I'm quitting at 0.4 I'm quitting right now because, Why? Because I don't like feeling like I'm about to die That's why So if I'm not going to make my 2.0, I'm not doing it Well, that's exactly what happens With a make your life dream Because it's for you anyway It's for you And so if you get to the point where It's just, you know, you're going to pay too much For the likelihood of it happening What are you going to do? You're just going to settle You're just going to quit You're just going to do something else And listen, that's just how life is If you have that kind of dream You are on that graph That is the sort of critter human beings are I don't care how special snowflake you think you are But you see, that's not equally true of people who get a give your life dream. It's not equally true of those people. Those people, it's just, they realize that there is something that has to be done. That thing is bigger than them. They're going to do it, and nobody's going to make them run. And the thing is settled in their mind. And you see, God is grounding that idea in this passage by saying that the most important thing in this whole scenario is not the outcome, but the fact that he's with them. Right? Chapter one ends with a, they get up, they get ready to work, and what does he, he gets right in there, he says, listen, I'm with you. And then chapter two, he says, listen, I know this looks terrible, but I want you, you need to know something. I'm with you. Now, basically only on the premise of I'm with you He can say, now be strong. Now be strong. Now be strong and work and don't be afraid. Now think about that. He thinks, apparently God thinks a lot of the idea that he's with them. Right? That just that enough is going to give them a vision to go, that's right, he's with us. That's all that matters. That's all that that matters. And you see, do you see how that's fundamental? That's what Christianity is. Everything we do, we do out of the belief that the justifying reason is that the good, honorable, loving, truthful God who rescued us and is redeeming the world simply has called us to do it, and he's with us. And whether or not we achieve the outcome we hope for really is irrelevant because God doesn't hold people accountable for outcomes. He holds people accountable for how— Joyfully, they submit to and live out the duty of the role they actually have. That's it. But we don't like words like duty, and we don't like concepts like roles. They're too constricting. But that's, that's exactly what—that's exactly the way God talks about these things. So what I want to do for just a couple of minutes is I want to talk about— how God promises to be with these folks because it's very easy for us to talk about having a relationship with Jesus or a relationship with God or whatever and for us to be like, oh, God is with us and then for us to load in our own expectations about what that should mean for God to be with us because what that normally means is the minute we believe God is with us, what does that pull back in? The make my life dream because God's with me now and he's good so he'll be good to me and so he'll make sure my make my life dream happens, right? 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 Of course. How many people pitch Christianity every year because of that ludicrous, logical assumption that comes straight out of natural humanity? Thousands, probably. God is very specific in how he says he's with these people. Very specific. And there's three ways. And listen, I need to apologize up front. They they all start with P. I'm sorry that that's the case. I hope that doesn't make it cheesy for you, but... I'm in a generation where you don't try to make them start with P. You try to make them not, and if they do, you've got to apologize. So the first is that um, he's with you by means of promise. Like, he promised to be with them, right? I mean, he says, that, you know, they're, they're freaking out, and he's like, listen, guys, remember when you came out of Egypt, I promised that I would be your God and you would be my people? You've got to realize, at this point, that's 950 years ago. <laughs> I mean, think about that. He's like, he's like, don't you remember? I promised. I promised I'd be with you. You know, almost a millennia ago, and not my spirit remains with you. I mean, through all the discipline, sending you into exile, all that, all the stuff that, ha- all the shenanigans, the blessing, the cr- all that. He's like, yeah, I just, I've been here. The whole, I've always been here, based on a promise. I mean, th- th- I mean, think about. I mean, picture a married couple, you know, you've got Mike and Sarah, right? And Sarah is just looking around and she sees her friends who are really nice ladies who go to the gym every week and who dress nice. Their husband's just leaving and their families falling apart and people getting divorced and, you know, custody battles and blah. And she just, she know, she thinks her husband loves her, but she's, you know, it, it, just the world she lives in makes her nervous. And so she goes to him and she goes, she goes, Mike, how are we doing? Like, I know, I know, I know, know you are faithful, as far as I know, but I just feel, I just wonder if, you know, this is going to last. I just wonder if you'll be here in 10 years. I just don't know. And um, we don't really picture the scene going like this. Mike going, baby, I made a promise. Because the first thing that would occur to us is, of course, yeah, but everybody makes a promise. All those other ladies whose husbands walked them, their husbands all made a promise right? But but that's a really valid response still, though, isn't it? Because it just depends on who's promising and what kind of person they are. And so, you know, Mike just might be the kind of person that keeps his promises. And if his marriage starts getting bad, he'll fight for it. And that's just—it's his duty, it's his role, it's the dream he'll give his life for, and not the dream that's supposed to make his life. So— He's going to keep his promise And so he just says Baby I'm going to keep my promise Now th- that may not comfort her But it should If Mike really is that kind of guy And you see that's the, that's the issue with God Is that we live in a world In which there aren't a lot of promise keepers Who, ke- who keep their promise because it's right Even if the other person screws up And that's just what they do They just keep promises But that's the funny thing is Is that God can kind of shrug his shoulders and go Yeah, so for a thousand years I've kept my promise And I'm going to keep keeping my promise And you don't have to worry about this I'm going to keep keeping my promise And my spirit still is still there You didn't, I didn't even have to speak through Haggai It was already still there And one of the things that you and I Really could take comfort from Is that God then later 450 years later Ratified that covenant all over again With Jesus And again and again and again, he stamped his promise on history. I promise to be with the one who believes. I promise that if you come into this relationship with me, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will bring about my purposes, and they will be good. Your life may look worse, but it will be better. Right? Okay, so that's promise. The second one is... That he promised to be with him in presence. And, and he says, just in verse 5, he says, And my spirit remains among you, so don't be afraid. Now, that's a really good promise and a really terrible one in the sense that what we want is not for God's spirit to be with us. We want something much more tangible than that, right? I mean we want... I mean, I, I was telling somebody the other week about leading the church. I was like, you know, it'd just be awesome if we could have, I could have like a monthly coffee with Jesus himself. And he would just like come to coffee and be like, okay, Nick, this is what I want you to do the next month. And that would be so helpful for me because then I would know I was going in the right direction. But, and that's never, we've never actually done that. Um, and it's not because my schedule's too busy. It's just, I, it's just, it's not, it's, it's not available. That's not how it goes. Um, Jesus does not promise to be with us in the mode that we ask for. But he does promise that there is a mode in which he is present right now. That right now, not in just in the past, and not just in his providential work in the future, but right now, his spirit, which you may or may not be able to perceive, is present with and if you believed in Jesus, John 14 says, in you. And, that, and that's not just something he says here, but it's actually something, to get back to the point, point one, that he promised. So on that same authority of his promise, the promise that his spirit is with us right now and in us is real. And that's one of the reasons why he's saying you can be strong. You can do the work. You cannot fear. And then the last one is his prov—his providence. He says in verse 7, he says, I will shake the nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now what is annoyingly repetitious in that bit of scripture? the Lord Almighty. I mean, there are probably a couple people in this room thinking, oh my gosh, why do I have to—Lord Almighty, Lord Almighty. I mean, really? Well, that, guess what? Read the whole book of Habakkuk, or, um, Haggai, and you know what you'll find? It's—this it's, is the only place it's repeated like that. Lord, it's really—technically, it's Lord of hosts, God of armies, but the, the idea behind it is might wrapped up in God's providence. Would it, would it, What Haggai is saying is, and what God is saying by calling himself the Lord Almighty, is saying, listen, I can do this. There is not a problem with my might. You might think that because you're building a crappy building, that there's a problem with my might. And you might think that because there's all kinds of junk going on in your life, or problems in different ways, or things that you're hoping that aren't coming out, you might think that there's some kind of issue with God's power. And that's one of the reasons why God said, call himself the Lord Almighty like five times in three lines. Because he wants you and I to know that he's perfectly capable of glorifying very ordinary things, and he will. And he likes it that way. And so he says that in this bad building— That he is going to make its glory greater than the former glory. That the desire of all nations will come. And people really argue about exactly what that means. Um, But I think, but if you look over the history of this, of the second, what's called the second temple, there's actually, you actually can take it a number of ways. Because just a little while after this, one of the emperors gives a whole bunch of money to renovate the temple and make it better. So they don't have the resource to really even probably finish the job. But just in time, one of the emperors decided, instead of humiliating all the gods in my empire, let me give money, build up all the temples of all the gods in my empire so that people can all pray for me. And so money came—real money that wasn't theirs came to build up their temple and make it better. Before—right before Jesus came on the scene, a totally pagan, crazy emperor named Herod— built that temple into a temple that historically was probably greater than Solomon's temple. But the most glorious thing was that the one glorious one, Jesus, came to that temple. That was the temple in which the Messiah actually came. That, that's what matters. <laughs> what matters is, is that this is the temple the one who is the true temple came to. And so that temple matters more. And one of the things that we need to recognize in the whole history of this thing is, is that um, this second temple that they were building, it looked worse, but it was going to be better. When Jesus came along, I mean, just think about how people thought and talked about Jesus. He's supposed to be the Messiah. How did that relate to people's dreams about what the Messiah would be like? Well, Jesus was worse, but he was better. He looked worse. But he was better. And then God creates this thing called the church, which is a bunch of converted silly people, mostly slaves and women to start off with, that was probably not as organized as the old temple system, and certainly not the way you'd start a big worldwide global earth redemptive movement. The whole idea looked terrible, but it turned out in a lot of ways it was better. And you've got to ask yourself, in the actual life that you've really got, in the things God is actually calling you to do as an individual person and as part of his gathered community in the church, do you believe that through his promise, because of his presence, and because He's what he said about his providence, that your life following him, though it might look worse, will be better? Because if you believe that, It will not be as hard as it is now to be strong and to fight and to work to be bold as a lion and to not be afraid. I mean, think about your dream for your life. Just think about your dream for your life. Have you given careful thought to how you have been dreaming? Is, is, is your dream a make-your-life dream? Or is it a God dream that for which you, should, you can give your life? Is it the kind of dream that is going to make you quit and settle? Or is it the kind of dream in which you know God is with you and that will make you bold as a lion? Don't Don't be afraid to give everything to Jesus. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of his absolute total claim on your life. Don't be afraid that his promises are vague and that you look like you're going to get a worse deal than you could accomplish for yourself. God always invites us into a life that looks worse but is better. I mean think about your private life Is your work a make your life dream Or a give your life dream How do you engage with it How do you do your work Do you do your work because you can delight in the duty of the role That God has providentially given you At this moment in time no matter what happens Or is your job A make your life dream That you need to turn out And why isn't it working and whatever And it actually makes your work worse not better What kind of dream is your work What kind of dream is your marriage Is your marriage disappointing you Are your children disappointing you? Do you have the emotional ability to hang in there in parenting a disappointing child? We can't even admit that our children disappoint us, and we're never supposed to tell them. But the fact is, is that all of us had these images in our dream about how our amazing children would make our lives, and they're not turning out. What, what, What kind of dream is your child? What kind of dream is your marriage? Is your marriage a give-your-life dream? You will fight for it to the bitter end. Not against her or him, but for it to the bitter end. Because it is the duty in which you delight. It is your role. And though others may flee when nobody chases them, you will be bold as a lion. Do you have the courage to fight for an unlikely dream because winning was a fool's errand to begin with, but you must do it. Because it's who you are Because that is the direction in which God will be with you Because it might look worse But it will be better even if you fail I have, listen I hate divorce I have seen some beautiful divorces Not because divorce is ever beautiful But because somebody followed Jesus and fought for the marriage till they couldn't fight anymore. They fought for it and, and they wouldn't let it go and they, and, and they fought until the very end, till the other person walked over the end of the horizon line. And, the, and, and, and then there was nothing left for them to do. They had completely fulfilled their role and they had delighted as best they could in their duty and then they walked on. And divorce is always ugly, but I have seen a few like that. I've seen a few like that, and, as, and they were as beautiful as war can be, because it is better even when it fails. Let me turn to the church for a little bit, just for a little bit, to us, High Point Church. Um, it's customary for seniors to talk about vision, especially uh, you know in January. January's a good time to talk about vision. Who are we going to be? What are we going to do? What hills are we going to take? How are we going to change the world? And um, listen, I'm so Larry Osborne. I so am like, I, I mean, I'm, I, have, I don't really actually have my little notebook at somewhere where I wrote that I'd pastor some big church, but I certainly believe that. And, and I also want to be a really good shepherd, and I totally believe what he says. Listen, one of those dreams will kill the other, and you've got to kill the dream. And part of—here's part of my vision talk right now, okay? Um, some, we need to kill some dreams. There, there are some people who look back at the good old days, and they want the good old days to come back, and that dream needs to die. And then there are some people who hated the good old days, and they want to have better days in the future, just partly in spite of the good old days, and that dream has to die, too. It's all just—that's all just got to die. There's some bad things in the past. There's some great things on which whose shoulders we stand on. The past is the past. The future is going to be the future. The future is not going to be like the past, and the future is not going to be like the future that we imagine. The future is going to be ordinary. It's going to be ordinary. It's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteering for 90 minutes in the children's ministry— being part of the hospitality ministry and greeting a new family and making sure that they feel comfortable and connecting them with somebody they can really make friends with. It's going to be going on a Wednesday or Thursday night to your small group and, 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 and revealing something about yourself and really studying the Bible again. And it's going to be all these ordinary things I mean, think about all the extraordinary things we'd like to a- accomplish together I mean, I, I mean, I'm thinking of like Send missionaries to the unreached peoples of the world And raise up a new generation of young leaders to bless hundreds of churches To lead hundreds or maybe thousands of people in Madison to Jesus And to build really fun but totally unbreakable families In a world in which families are so fragile and so stressed and no fun I would love to do that Would you like to do that? I think that would be really awesome And I would give 20 years of my life to do that. But listen, even God-centered dreams are made up of 50,000 totally ordinary, not sexy steps that are boring. I mean, how does a missionary get on the field? Right? They have 500 coffee meetings where they say, I would like to go to Kazakhstan, and here's why I feel God is calling me, and whatever. And at some point, they have to ask you to write a check every month for $30,000 to $70,000. And they have to ask you that because they are going to Kazakhstan unless a lot of people say, yes, I will not buy Starbucks four times a week, and I will write you a check for 15 years so that you, and, and that's not glamorous. Nor is being the missionary glamorous. It, it looks like packing and getting on a plane and flying to a place and renting a house and putting up some pictures and making some friends and spending years learning a language that makes no sense to you and, and, and all these normal, ordinary things. Missionaries aren't out there like swinging from Indian and Jones like things and shooting behind their head and throwing Bibles down people's throats. That's not what they're out there doing. It's not glamorous, right? I mean, think about young generation leaders. Yeah, it wouldn't be great to raise up a young generation of leaders, train them to bless churches and strengthen churches all over the country. That would be awesome. But what we, we don't have 2,500 young leaders, right? We don't have that. No, we've got, we've got Jen Eppinger who wants to start on Monday but is going to have to raise support because we don't have money in our budget for it. So she's got to raise her own support to be our intern. We've got Adam Darbone, who lives in my basement. <laughs> I want to broach on something because I want to show you a video real fast um, of this. One of the things that will take for us, and here's a very ordinary thing, is we need five to ten families to commit to, at some points, being boarders, where, where they take one of these young people into their house to cut their, their 30% or 40% off their expenses for doing an internship or being here, and they just say, listen, you can just live with me. That's a very ordinary thing It has extraordinary impact And, um, it, but, but, and here's why I want to show you this video of Lisa and the Cusos Is because for, for most of you that, That's a life that looks worse Than the one you have right now If I said, hey, I want to put a 21-year-old in your house For like six months or a year That, that sounds to you like a worse life But everybody who does it Says it's better So if this works Why don't, you, why don't we watch this for a minute
1: And here Mary Ellen and I were just relaxing my own business and (laughs) Pastor Nick comes along and says to us, say, could I speak to you about possibly having someone come and stay with you? We said, fine. And Pastor Nick came. I think we were probably sitting right about where we are right now and got involved in the conversation. Um, At that time, he indicated perhaps there'd be a pastoral intern. Later, he did a bait and switch on us. And we ended up being the winners, I think, because uh, lo and behold, along came a fine young woman to live with us, Lisa.
2: Yeah, and I was trying to figure out where I was going to go and what job I was going to accept. And um, one of the perks of <laughs> accepting at High Point was that there was a potential opportunity for me to have free room and board. What I told Lisa was that the last thing she needed from us was uh, another mom and dad. We were not going to be her mom and dad wondering whether she was going to be home for dinner and what time she was going to be home at night and blah, blah, blah. We didn't want to do, be that. And I think that she really perked up when we said that because from there on, we just talked and clicked and decided upon what day she was going to move in.
1: Uh, I have to shamefully admit that when Pastor Nick first brought up this topic and and Lisa was going to be coming or Lisa could come to be with us. The first thought that crossed my mind was um, how is this going to impact me? And then, but very quickly on the heels of that was no, how might the Lord use this for His glory? And as soon as that switch was made, then it wasn't like, well, am I going to lose something in this? But rather, how is the Lord going to use this? And when once one started to see it that way, then it was like, wow, I wonder what this is going to be because clearly there will be some changes here. And it has been, and it has been absolutely wonderful, and it has been just the very fact that the Lord is bringing together his brothers and sisters to share life together. And that's what has happened here, and we're just so grateful for it.
2: I would say that, yes, I have one regret in that it would be why didn't we do this when our girls were at home and be able to see the blessing of what we are experiencing so rather than dwell on that and look at the negative when our family was here over Christmas uh, there were nine of us, our two daughters and um, their families and as our grandkids were on the floor playing a board game with Lisa I thought look at how they're enjoying her and what a blessing for them to be able to understand that we have her living with us and the lord put on my mind who knows down the road maybe they will look upon that and think i'm going to do that someday i mean i feel oh my gosh it's been such a huge blessing an incredible blessing to live here not only for the obvious financial reason but i feel like i've not only learned a lot from conversations that we've had and just seen what the Lord's done in your guys' life and what he continues to do. But also, I just get to see what a marriage centered on Christ is about and what it looks like to be parents and grandparents who love Jesus and also love their family. So, I mean, it's just been really pretty awesome.
0: What. (laughs) One of the things Lisa was telling me in my office when I was watching this this morning was, she said, that, uh, "One of the things too is, is that um, that girls will come over and and be at the house." And she said they've talked about how much the cuscos have blessed. She's, they've blessed her friends as well. And um, <clears throat> and I, I, I mean, I show you this probably because I want us to have a great training opportunity for young people, and for people coming out of college who, who don't have a lot of money, who have to raise support, to have a place where they can have room and board is a game changer. And it could be an enormous blessing for you. But, but here's, here's the reason why it fits into this sermon, is because it's a life that looks worse but is better. Who wants their privacy stepped on? Who wants another person in their house? Who wants another mouth to feed? Who wants somebody else who could, you know, be in the shower when you want to get in the shower? Like in my house, you turn water on and one, it like heats up your shower. Like I have one of those houses. And so now there's like seven people living in my house. And who who wants that? I mean, it's a i mean, we want our privacy, we want our space. It's a life that looks worse, but it's a life that is better. Because an or a very ordinary step is taken in which God— accomplishes his providential purposes, he brings redemption, he does all the things you've w- you've wished would happen, all your dreams, but it comes to totally ordinary things. So, you can and if that's if that's the case if we think that way, you cannot tire when parenting that disappointing child. You can, you can not be afraid to fight for a failing marriage. You can not waste your cancer or your health. You can be strong in the face of another load of laundry or another snow-covered driveway. Um, or you cannot be afraid to spend 90 minutes with mind-numbingly boring crawlers in the children's ministry so their parents can hear the gospel. You you cannot be afraid. You cannot fear. You can be strong. You can have courage because you know God is with you when you enter into his give-your-life dream that looks worse but will be better. And so as much as I love great vision talks and I like to be inspired and I like to be told where we're going to go and what we're going to do and how many hills we're going to blow up and we're going to push satan back to the red sea and blah blah blah. listen I believe all that stuff and I want to accomplish some great things but I do not want to create a make my life dream that destroys a give your life dream I do not want us to have some idea of what we're going to do that won't break down into the ordinary parts because life is ordinary turns out and normal things turns out are normal And if we cannot embrace the ordinary and normalness of every single thing we do and actually do them, delight in the duty of our roles, nothing gets accomplished. Nothing gets accomplished. And so I want to encourage you that this morning, there are some dreams you might—you have that might need to die. If they're make-your-life dreams, they need to die. You need to trade them for a give-your-life dream. I know it's scary. Your life will it look worse, but it will be better because of God's promise. He's been with you. He'll be with you. His presence, he will spiritually be with you in this moment, right now. And his providence, he will turn it out for some ultimate good. And it, it's only by that means Will we not run when nobody pursues us, but where we'll step into the delight of our roles and do our duty as bold as a lion? Not because we're self righteous and not because we're trying to accomplish some wacky dream for ourselves, but because we believe that Christ is with us. Father, I. Um, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that does all kinds of amazing dreams, that all kinds of pictures of the future that we'd want to paint, that they would happen. But Father, we pray that you'd make us a people who embrace our ordinary lives. Who are not afraid to do what needs to be done Who don't wait for something cool to happen but, do the, but lift each boring brick And put it on each other Don't make us the people who only want to come to the ribbon cutting And the inauguration of the building That we're to build But help us to be the people who put the mortar on And put the brick on And put the mortar on And put the brick on And put the mortar on And put the brick on Every day Every day of our lives And who do it happily Because we know that you're with us that you'd make us that kind of church in Jesus' name.